around the first quarter of the 20th century, people were hoping that there was a kind of axiomatic system that we could derive all of mathematics from, that this was timeless, that any number you could think of, such as pi or e, were given. And then there was a natural reaction against that and said, oh, how do you know? And people were saying, well, you can't really rely on things being given in a platonic universe, what you could rely on is, is there a way to construct these? Is there some algorithmic way whereby you can see how the digits of pi may follow each other? Although, if that's the case, you never know what lies at the end of pi. At any time, you might know a finite number, but you don't know what lies indefinitely on the other side. There's an openness in what those digits are. So people began to see mathematics and possibly physics as not being given but as something where you had to ask what processes generate numbers. And the best you could say is we can have a well-timed method to derive those digits of pi, but we don't know exactly what they're going to be. write a novel using only nouns? Well, maybe. But it won't be very good, nor easy, nor will it tell a story. Verbs link events, allow for narrative, communicate becoming. So why, in telling stories of our economic lives, have people settled into using algebraic theory ill-suited to the task of capturing the fundamentally uncertain, open and evolving processes of innovation and exchange? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we bring our two-part conversation with SFI external professor W. Brian Arthur to a climax, a visionary exploration of multiple scientific methodologies that takes us from the I Ching to AlphaGo, Henri Bergson to Claude Shannon, artificial life to a forgotten mathematics with the power to, just maybe, save the future from inadequate and totalizing axioms. We pick up by revisiting the end of part one in episode 68. If you're just tuning in, you'll want to double back for vital context. And if you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe wherever you prefer to listen rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us, including job openings for both SFI staff and postdoctoral researchers, as well as online courses at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. In the history that you present of economic thinking, all of the math is before the publication of The Origin of Species. And that like the reason that you keep turning to biology seems to be that biology made this transition in the 19th century between 
basically a static taxonomy, a version of the world in which all of the species have been created and are timeless and permanent to a world in which species go extinct and species are created in an ongoing sort of innovation process. So likewise, algorithmic thinking seems to emerge through a kind of a Darwinian paradigm shift that, you know, you get this notion of the world as essentially an, an emanation of these eternal forms in the mind of God to a world in which everything is in flux. Yes. And the resistance that the, that the theory has experienced and its various implications has a lot to do with the visceral discomfort that many people feel with the idea that the self and various other things that we take for granted as static, as solid ground upon which to base our understanding of the world are in fact constantly in flux. Yes. You make a point that all of this math biases us towards equilibrium thinking. Yeah. That makes sense if the world that you're living in isn't changing in unexpected, freaky ways every day. Yeah. But then suddenly you need a non-equilibrium model because the world that you're living in is clearly not in equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So that's where we get this new epistemology of a mutable self, you know, the Bucky Fuller, I am a verb, yep. the, you know, Alfred North Whitehead's process philosophy. Yep. And again, this was recently formalized in a paper I'm always bringing up on the show, uh, our lead author, this paper, Information Theory of Individuality, right? where he shows, yeah, he shows that the category of the individual is itself something that emerges out of these relational processes, it's informational integrity through time or it's informational scaffolding by its environment. So it's just funny how it's not just that the theories disclose new worlds, but that they themselves seem to be the precipitates of our interaction with the world. And that in a shift to an algorithmic economics, one that allows us to explain where new technologies come from and the way that our various relational processes lead to unexpected phenomena and the way that this helps us strip ourselves of the bias of equilibrium. So yeah, that's just a riff that I'd love to pass back to you. Okay. I think you're getting at all the important things. Just uh, one footnote to make sure facts are straight. Doran published uh, The Origin of Species in 1859, and coincidentally, mathematization of economics really took off in the 1870s, and from there, uh, after Darwin's ideas, in fact, Alfred Marshall, who was part of that process of mathematizing economics, famously said the mecca of economics is biology. He had read Darwin. He wanted an evolutionary economics, and that evolutionary economics, he couldn't see how to do it. So he was very much instrumental in this equilibrium view, and economics doesn't deny change. It just says, okay, we'll have a screenshot of the economy here then maybe firms electrify and stop using steam engines. So we have another screenshot. We go from this equilibrium to that equilibrium. It's rather like saying that children grow up and uh, 
at age two they look like this and at age 11 they look uh, like something else it's fine but it doesn't really explain any process of how things develop and if you're looking at the development say of a system of arteries or uh, neural systems it doesn't work in finite uh, snapshots and uh, I think Marshall knew this uh, in the 1890s, but there wasn't much he could do about it. And yeah, there is a bias in standard mathematics. It's not quite insurmountable. All of this is just awkward. I think standard mathematics, as I keep saying, has been wonderful at explaining relationships in economics, at how incentives arise, how different forces in the economy uh, bring forth certain behaviors, how behaviors are related, how prices in one sector, steel, might be affected by prices, say, in, of oil. Standard economics, standard mathematics allows us to understand all of this extremely well. What it doesn't do is show us how things evolve and come about. So just a couple of things. Yeah, standard mathematics tends to bias us towards systems that don't have new variables coming along. You set up a model with variables X, Y, Z. Maybe sometime further, a new variable might be invented or come along, say P and then another one, Q and R. But it's kind of awkward and hard to do that in mathematics. So I'm not saying processes can't be handled in algebra, but generally speaking, it's awkward. Just to amuse myself, I wondered what it would be like to write a novel using only nouns. Somebody told me that Virginia Woolf had, had actually experimented with that. And then I started to wonder, and I don't want to be too mean here, but what it would be like to sort of say, they kissed uh, using only nouns. And the way I would do this is, you know, uh, let variable P be the position of his lips in three dimensions at variable P prime, position of her lips. And then you would say something like, as T tends to some time, capital T, the absolute value of P minus P prime goes to zero. So you can do it, but, you know, there's a kind of, for God's sake, <laughs> why don't you just say they kissed? <laughs> and I don't want to make fun of mathematics uh, too much, but I do think that what I'm emphasizing is the different languages of expression, algebraic mathematics, and other mathematics uh, would give you different views of the world. You can shoehorn all of these things into geometry, or it's harder to shoehorn four and five dimensions into geometry or n dimensions, and that's part of why algebra took over. And it's hard to shoehorn processes with novel structures appearing into standard algebra. Algebra is good at saying this grows and this uh, diminishes, this is up, this is down, and so on. Um, one thing I want to say as you're talking, um, this is probably not in very logical sequence, but you mentioned none of this is. <laughs> anyway, 
you mentioned that there's a growing idea or set of ideas in science and in philosophy that you would know about, I'm sure, in both, a movement towards saying things sort of exist, but hang on, they're changing. So you could say planets exist, but if you look in a longer time, you can't say, well, there is such a thing as Jupiter through all the eons of the solar system. It's like Jupiter's in process, it's changing, so is the sun, so is the earth. And so there's something you mentioned called process philosophy, dating from Alfred North Whitehead and before, and there are modern exponents of that. John Dupre, if I'm right, uh, is very much in this area. There are some really thoughtful people thinking about the world, not so much as having fixed objects, but that everything in the world is changing and in process. For me, I'm thrilled and amused that this brings us back to ancient Chinese philosophy. I just want to mention that I'm a huge fan of Taoist philosophy. And in that philosophy, they'd be reluctant to say any pattern is there for good. In fact, everything's evolving, changing, new things are forming. One thing is bringing into being the next thing, and so on. So one of the oldest books on that, the Yi Jing, is basically the book of change. And we're starting, you know, somebody could say, well, all right, uh, is algebraic mathematics with all its equilibrium and its fixed variables and its nouns, is that... Or is that over? Not at all. But it may apply Jupiter isn't changing that much and maybe in the next million years or so. So we, it's convenient to look at things as fixed and growing or changing uh, in amounts. However, over a longer term, it's not much good to say a new industry arises, computation arises, what set of variables, for example, if you were looking at computation in the 1970s would tell you that the cloud becomes important? Three, four decades later, I don't know what would tell you that telecommunications becomes important. So these things matter. We went from computation in the 1960s and 70s to being about machines and those machines processed numbers industrially. So this was called information processing. And then weirdly, the erbium doped photon amplifier gets invented around 1987. And suddenly photonic information transmission becomes available industrially and similar sort of time scale, really good satellites. So suddenly by the early 90s, the scene has changed. It's like in a dream, there's telecommunications as possible over phone lines and it's slow and I can even remember those days. And suddenly there's photon transmission there's fiber optics and there's satellite transmission. So suddenly, 
you can be an architectural firm in Seattle and you can have your detailing done in real time by a back office in Budapest. You could be a car manufacturer in Detroit and have parts supplied in China. That changes. You get offshoring. You get a completely different economy that leads to its new problems. But there's no way in 1970 or 1980 even, in my opinion, where you could see any of that coming. <laughs> so questions of change and formation in a slightly longer term than just looking at the next three years are extraordinarily important because the economy is always exploring and has processes of finding completely new things and restructuring itself. Um, I want to mention, and I think this has to do with, I'm still on the subject of your <laughs> questions, I hope. So is everything I'm saying just a big downer? You know, well, we have to be careful. <laughs> we have to be careful about uh, using standard mathematics and economics if you think of it as focusing certain things, you can see quantity relations, how things are related, how things affect each other. Wonderful. But it leaves out the idea of new structures and of processes affecting other processes and inhibiting other processes. So is there any mathematics that would take care of that? And there are such things as process algebras and so on, but um, that's not what we use. So my answer is I began to realize slowly, <laughs> oh my God, there is, of course, it's computation. And I don't mean just making simulations and crunching numbers. Let me give you a uh, at least my take on computation, I think not so much in terms of computers or cranking through things, but in terms of thinking algorithmically. Algorithms are set up so that you can have processes execute this in this way and watch the process executing and after a while, if such and such is uh, greater than if you know the number of iterations is greater than a hundred, then call a sub process. If it's not, call a different process. So algorithms are set up basically as sequences of events that call or inhibit other sequences of events, and often those processes or events form some new structure. And this is all not just because they're algebraically based, they're heavily equation-based, most algorithms, but it's that they have if-then conditional branching, as it's called. And it's if you have done enough of such and such and you can track a process, just like you might be an industrial process, and then say, boom, we've done enough of that, let's switch over to a different process. I don't want to say I see the entire world that way, that would be a bit too mechanical, but what I will say is that that gives us an alternative language, one in which you can express verbs, this action happens, that action triggers that action, it inhibits those actions, and if you have enough of that, 
then something else happens. So algorithms are stories about how processes set in motion other processes or stop processes happening, but they're not deterministic. You can feed in some form of randomness and you might find you're going down this path rather than that path. You could, in principle, do some of this or quite a bit of it algebraically, but it'd be like saying we can do geometry pretty well in three dimensions. Let's try to do it now in six dimensions. Yeah, in principle, sure. <laughs> but uh, the language is awkward. So what you can do with computation, or I prefer to say algorithmic language, or algorithmic mathematics is to track processes, allow those processes to create new structures. Those new structures might create new processes all within the algorithm working itself out, all endogenous. So you get endogenous change. I would go even further. What I noticed about computation is that computation or algorithmic processes respond in a magnificent way to context. So you could say, okay, I'm using an algorithm to steer my aircraft. This is actually what happens. Fly by wire, it's called in the aircraft business, the wires being computer connection. So an aircraft may be traveling along, say, 35,000 feet, let's say it's an Airbus or whatever, and it's responding to outside buffeting, it's responding, maybe being rerouted, checking where weather is and checking its current position and automatically as a process adjusting and so on. A lot of that's done uh, mathematically and that's what uh, my background is, very much the sort of control. But if something happens, if some condition changes, if there's a nearby aircraft unexpectedly, the context changes. So algorithms with if-then conditions, the if part says, if I'm in steady air, do this. If there is weather ahead and 50 miles uh, trigger the rerouting algorithm. If something else happens, if I'm held up at uh, near an airport, go into a holding position. If the price of tea in China changes, then do such and such. So, what algorithms lose, and I want to be very clear on this, is you can't easily see the logic working out. Things are more complicated. What mathematicians love about mathematics is you set up a system, just like a sort of Sherlock Holmes cast of characters. You set up the rules for the relations in the equations. Then you start cranking. You start manipulating the equations and say, oh, if this is true, then that has to be true. All right, another few lines of deduction. Then that has to be true. And you get these moments in mathematics where you say, oh, so that's how that works. Then you get this structure. Ooh, and then that leads to that. Wow. And then that explains why such and such is in relation to that. 
And you get this tremendous high uh, from doing this sort of algebraic uh, standard mathematics. You can't get that high with algorithms. They just play out probably inside a computer or maybe inside your head. But uh, you don't see that. So it's a big disadvantage of computation. You could say equally with algebra, you can't see the geometry working out in some graph unless you plot it simultaneously. <laughs> so computation or algorithms work their way out. We don't see what's going on and so on. But they have this wonderful compensation that you can make them more detailed arbitrarily. So if you need more detail here, uh, you can put more detail into the algorithm. That's an art, but all mathematics is art. You can track the context changing. So an algorithm may be partly creating its own context. Imagine an algorithm that's looking at cars and dense traffic. Traffic doesn't exist per se. Cars exist. And cars are responding to cars around them in their neighborhood, slowing down, speeding up, passing other cars. And we can call the local pattern cars are creating, we can call that traffic. So the cars are creating the traffic, the traffic is causing the cars to respond. The traffic, if you like, is the context that the cars are creating. So this is, I think, at the essence of complexity and why it applies to the economy. Individual objects, in this case cars, are creating a fluid context that uh, the individual elements have to react to. That's algorithmic. You could do it possibly with a bit of stress and strain algebraically, but with if-then conditions, you can do it beautifully. If some car in front or behind gets too close, then move to another lane or something like that. So it's harder to do that in algebra. It could be done in principle. But now we can do this algorithmically. So algorithms are much better at detail. Uh, detail can be arbitrary. We don't have to say all players or agents in the economy are identical. We don't have to say they're rational. We have models to say, here's how they might explore and make sense. Any changes in pattern, they respond to their immediate context. So changes in pattern and new structures can arise endogenously with algorithms. And I think, above all, algorithms can uh, generate new things that we haven't seen before. So I don't know what system of equations you could write down to teach some system how to play Go. And yet with Alpha Go Zero, which is essentially suite of algorithms, you're basically saying, okay, I'll tell you the rules for the game of Go, but you're going to have to develop some smart inductive way, maybe over days or weeks of computation, to play a good game, but not with human input, with 
the actual intelligence of that game arising by playing against some other version of yourself. And so AlphaGo Zero was based upon that. You can't get that easily with equations, or somebody might say, well, in principle, theoretically, you could, but it would take many, many universes, <laughs> uh, infinite amount of time almost to arrive there. And yet we can do this algorithmically. So to summarize here, I'm saying that Algorithms are natural language for process. You could look at what I've been calling processes in biology as algorithms, not to say algorithms describe everything. They don't describe human emotions and things like that in the economy, human behavior, not that easily. But they provide another language in which we can have verbs and nouns working together. So my argument is that science itself is shifting. Science shifts, I believe, when new instruments come along, literally x-ray crystallography plus the mathematics that goes with that. So suddenly by the 1950s, we can look at complicated organic molecules, 1952, 1953, DNA, and suddenly we can use this new instrument to see how they're composed and understand what they do. They're the basic uh, components of genetics and life. And that arises out of some new instrument of understanding. As instruments of understanding come along, they bring new insights. Different types of mathematics bring different insights. Geometry is wonderful, and we still use it. We graph everything we can, especially in statistics. And algebra is wonderful, but it's limited to quantities and amounts and it rules out largely verbs and processes. They're much harder to do. Verbs and processes are natural in algorithmic, what you might call algorithmic mathematics. And I think the person who understands this best connected to Santa Fe is Greg Chaitin. And I've been following his work. I've known him for several decades through SFI. So it's connections with SFI that really count here. So then the proposition is this. Suppose we changed from geometry to algebra in the 1870s and on for the next 100 years or more. What does that brought economics? I'd argue quite a lot. What did geometry bring? Quite a lot. But what if we want to include verbs and processes and events, which have been ruled out largely, then we have to open up to thinking algorithmically and using computation. There's a lovely quote from Edsgar Dijkstra, a Dutch computer scientist, maybe 50 years ago or so, really smart guy. He says, um, if I can get the quote right, he says, computer science is no more about computers than astronomy is about telescopes. And I love that because basically what we're learning, and I w I'm influenced here by Steve Wolfram and others, what we're learning is that algorithms occupy a whole world of their own. 
Turing didn't call them algorithms, he called them methods. Claude Shannon called them algorithms. The modern word is algorithm, but they inhabit a world that's infinite and a world of things changing and giving birth to things and calling in other algorithms and stopping other algorithms. This is very close to, say, how neural processes work. I'm not saying they're perfectly algorithmic, and that's a huge debate in neuroscience. But uh, what is true is that science is shifting from an amount of this and amount of that in all in colored test tubes to seeing the world, as you were pointing out, in terms of things forming. And not just things forming, things that can't be fully nailed down. John Dupre is very fond of pointing out that there's no such thing as a thing that it changes over time. So even the table in your study is a process, it's changing. And I think there's a lot to be said for that point of view. But science itself is discovering a new language. You could call this computation. I don't like that term. It's too much about machines. You could call it algorithms. That's sort of smacks of Google and Facebook. <laughs> uh, I like the term algorithmic mathematics, which is how do you do logical expression? That makes it mathematics, including Boolean logic, say. And you have a language now to talk about events, processes, things unfolding as the computation works out. And those are along with conditional branching, if-then conditions. So systems like this, and I think this is the essence of complexity, complexity is about systems that are interacting with and creating their environment or their context or part of that context, and then reacting to that, and thereby changing. And this may bring up new structures and this gives a language and economics for looking at structural change and formation. Yeah. So the last thing I want to bring up with you on this call is about that structural change. You know, listening to you speak on this stuff, I'm reminded of Mark Andreessen's famous article, Why Software is Eating the World. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the notion that our technologies and our epistemic frames are themselves evolutionary products. And, you know, we live in a world that is, you know, both informed by and sort of creating and therefore amplifying this notion that everything is an evolving process. I want to, I guess, ironically, land this conversation in where it seems like this is all taking us which is fundamental uncertainty. And hopefully by the end of this call, we can agree that what we've done in a discussion of algorithmic mathematics and, and its economic implications is sort of save the future, or at yeah. least you know, save the openness of the future. And so I wanna take us or like tie a bow on this with a paper that you sent me 
a comment in Nature Physics by Nicolas Giesin on how mathematical language shapes our understanding of time and physics. And again, you know, just because this conversation is so rich with historical name dropping, I think it's worth. <laughs> he, uh, he he starts this this comment by talking about the 1922 debate between Albert Einstein and Henri Bergson, philosopher, yeah. as well yeah. as around the same time the argument between mathematician David Hilbert and <laughs> L.E.J. Brewer. Yeah. And so, you know, the notion that the physics that we're working with and living in now is akin in some respects to this kind of algebraic economic thinking in as much as the winners of those early 20th century debates were advocating an axiomatic mathematics in which yeah. numbers are these sort of timeless platonic objects. Mm. Whereas we're starting to come back around to appreciating now that we live in a world that is computationally enriched, you know, and capable of running these enormous simulations and making predictions we can't understand, et cetera. We're coming back around to the potential value of an intuitionist mathematics in which numbers are themselves processes. Mm -hmm. It's much like the biological species. You know, it seems as though it contains this eternity. You know, like mm -hmm. Giesen says in here that basically our choice is to put all of the randomness at the singularity at the Big Bang and then have all <laughs> of the laws and characteristics of physics specified in that what <laughs> Terence McKenna called the one free miracle physics is asking for. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Or we can accept that there is a finite number of information encoded in real numbers and that there's a kind of fundamental randomness. And I'd love for you to just riff on this article that you sent me. He says, basically, real numbers are marvelous tools that should not be abandoned. However, their practical use should not blind the physicists. After all, their use does not force us to believe that real numbers are really real. In yeah. other words, one should not confuse the epistemological usefulness of classical mathematics with the ontology, which might well be better described by intuitionist mathematics. And in so doing, he argues, we rescue the idea of indeterminism, of the openness of the future, and also we defeat the law of the excluded middle. We allow, again, for propositions about the future that can be somehow uh, neither true nor false. You know, So it seems like what you're pointing toward here actually is part of a larger gesture in thinking about math and science and philosophy toward, first of all, an epistemic humility. And mm -hmm. then also, you know, one in which it's not just that, you know, cars in traffic demonstrate emergent properties, but the very bedrock of modern thinking is itself mutable and evolutionary in this way that allows us to save time itself to restore the, a notion of an evolving universe to physics. Yeah, wonderful. And I think that you've answered your own question much better than I can. So, uh, give a very good understanding of this. My comment would be, to put it in a larger context, if you take a, a fairly large uh, view of how science has developed, and I would define science as our attempt to understand and explain uh, the real world, its phenomena, whether they're physical or human-centered or society-centered or chemical. It turns out that uh, after that I think Newton in 1687 or whenever it was, 
brought out such a staggering simplification of planetary orbits that they could be easily explained in a, using four uh, equations or so, that thinkers and philosophers almost got intoxicated by those ideas. And by the 1730s and 1750s, something called the Enlightenment had set in, very heavily based by Newton's breakthrough, and people started to think that everything in nature was explainable. I think the stanza in Alexander Pope's poem, Essay on Man, 1733, is, all nature is but art, meaning artifice or technicality or technique. All nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see, and so on. And basically, if we only understood the basic rules and we understood the starting point, we could predict everything. So basically, from that rather simple system and that really brilliant breakthrough of Newton's, we began to see the world as highly ordered, that if only we could understand its art or its technicalities, that it would be known to us and that everything was explainable and everything was given and possibly God-given at that and uh, that a platonic sort of world was justifiable, that the world exists, it's given, it's platonic and uh, certainly on up to the 20th century we assumed that if only we knew the starting conditions a la Laplace, then we could predict everything and we knew the mechanisms. We got in for a series of shockers in the 20th century, I'm glad to say, with, you know, Gödel showed that there was no axiomatic system that could encompass uh, all truths in, uh, say, in number theory or in, in uh, arithmetic. And with quantum theory and so on, we began to realize that not everything was predictable. So I think there's been a big shift in the sciences. I'm not sure, I, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not very articulate in this, but I would say that maybe around 1900 or the first quarter of the 20th century when David Hilbert was dominating superb mathematician, people were hoping that there was a kind of axiomatic system that would explain uh, or you could derive all of mathematics from, that uh, this was timeless, that a number, uh, any number you could think of such as pi or e, were kind of given and then there was a natural reaction against that and said, oh, how do you know? And people like Brouwer were saying, well, you can't really rely on things being given in a platonic universe. What you could rely on is, is there a way to construct these? Is there some algorithmic way, some constructive method whereby you can see how the digits of pi may follow each other? Although, if that's the case, 
you never know what lies at the end of pi. At any time, you might know a finite number, you know, five trillion digits of pi, but you don't know what lies indefinitely on the other side. You might say it exists platonically, but there's an openness in what those digits are. So people began to see mathematics and possibly physics as not being given, but as something where you had to ask what processes generate numbers, what processes bring about certain numbers, and you don't know in general how those processes work out. And the best you could say is we can have a well-timed algorithm or a well-timed method to derive those digits of pi, but we don't know exactly what they're going to be. Now, that's my take on this. Uh, we're finding similarly that you can set up in economics or indeed in physics the rules of the game, but you can't predict in advance what those rules are going to lead to. This is famous actually in the theory of cellular automata that and I think here Wolfram's done us all a great service. He shows that even with very simple rules in a cellular automaton, that uh, you don't have to get very complicated. These are systems that compute each other. Uh, there are either a lot of dots or squares that are black or white. And in the next iteration, uh, given squares black or white according to some rules of what its neighbors were before. So that's a cellular automaton. And what we've learned about that is you can't predict what you're going to see in a, a billion and one iterations in any shorter way than just allowing that to happen. You can regard this as messy and horrible, or if you've got a different temperament, which you seem to have and I have, you can regard this as a wonder that there is no way you can think of certain rules by which the universe works or the economy works, but there's no way to see what that will lead to. When I started to investigate technology, I realized that new technologies, think of, say, the laser printer, which is a combination of computer processor directing a laser to write images on a Xerox drum. And so that's a combination of previous technologies came along around 19. 72 or so in park where I'm standing at the moment. So that's a well-defined process, but you can say, okay, in the year 1000 or in the year 1843, when railways were just getting underway, what's all that going to lead to? And again, you can say, well, we can't say if new technologies are created out of existing ones and those become building blocks for yet further technologies, we can't say very far ahead what sort of new technologies are going to arise and when. Again, it's like saying, I don't know what the future digits of pi are going to be, no matter how many we know, as some Guinness Book of Records, numbers of digits, there's an infinite number. Uh, we don't know and never will. 
because all we can say is there's a process for discovering that, but we don't know. So I'm on the side of people who say something like this. Maybe the future exists somewhere. There's maybe out there, there's, if you want to posit God or something, future is known. But actually, I don't think so. Uh, I think that the future itself is being created. You might even know the processes by which it's being created in the economy, uh, but yet you can't predict anything. Personally, I like that. The architect Robert Venturi in the 1960s was really put off by the simplicities of the Bauhaus and Le Corbusier and others saying everything has to be minimal, functional, highly ordered, highly structured, axiomatic, if you like, and he detested that. So he wrote a book called uh, something like Complexity in Modern Architecture. He wasn't talking about complex systems. He was talking about non-simplicity. And he contrasted what he called prim dreams of pure order versus what he called messy vitality. And I think I'm in the messy vitality camp. I like the idea. I wouldn't like the idea that if I were infinitely smart, I could switch on a detective show and predict the ending, <laughs> you know, 10 episodes hence. I like the idea of the universe is unfolding. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's roughly the best I can do here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I guess just in, in closing, you know, it occurs to me that just as you are comfortable with both economics and nouns and economics and verbs having their place yes having right. the, having their function their utility yeah. and and you argue that there isn't one lens to rule them all it seems like it's important for us not to give listeners the wrong idea here and just say well okay software is going to eat the world and everything is going to be software and the algorithms are going to win against equations i know comparably it seems like there may be a way to at least satisfy everyone or at least mutually enrage everyone <laughs> that, uh, you know, if you follow quantum physicists like Yakir Aharonov or John Wheeler and the empirical evidence that they've offered that there is some sense in which we are capable of knowing at least certain details yep. of the future or that our current observations are capable of influencing stuff in the past. And here we're we're well off the party line of SFI, but I think it's worth, you know, seeing that maybe perhaps in research like that, there is a way to reconcile fundamental uncertainty and indeterminacy with the notion that there is some sense in where at least some details of the future are already encoded in a process-based dynamic relational way with a now that an intuitionist mathematics restores to physics, mm -hmm. but that we never get the infinite knowledge that allows us to do the God's eye view. Yeah. In whatever sense the future exists, it is collaborating with us on the past. Yeah, I would say so. Um, the economy itself, I'm just talking about economics here, but the economy itself is um, vast. Uh, it could be one country like the US, or it could be the whole world system or continent. But the economy is vast, and it's extraordinarily complicated. 
and it's completely and utterly dependent on human behavior, and it is detailed uh, fractally, you know, this happening in this industry is happening, these firms and the industry and these departments within firms and right down to human behavior. So the economy is an enormously complicated system and we have different ways or instruments of understanding it. We can examine history, we can examine statistics, we can do a lot of armchair theorizing and thinking through. We can do some mathematics. And up until around uh, 1970, economic theory was regarded as all of those. And these are different instruments for looking at this enormously complicated system. So it's a bit like saying the brain is enormously complicated and we can look at it through this MRI system or some other system. The economy, we did have half a dozen ways that were highly respected for looking at the economy. When this hyper-mathematical approach came along, partly due to Samuelson and others, I can respect it. But I do remember, I'm old enough to remember where it was controversial. Now it's taken over and people seem to assume that the only way to theorize about the economy is to do it in equation form using what amounts to fairly, not terribly advanced mathematics at that, but good mathematics. That's led to a lot of insight and a lot of cleaning up of the logic. But it only shows you certain things the way uh, x-rays show you certain things about the sun rather than some other method. So I think that what I'd like to see is respect for many ways of looking at the economy, including armchair insight, historical comparison, statistics, uh, mathematics itself, uh, algebraic analysis, and now something else, which is a new form of mathematics, algorithmic mathematics, or looking in terms of logical formalized processes. But none of these can capture an actual economy. It's like saying, you know, you have a friend or a spouse, and you could say, what's their personality? Well, you could put that into a Meyer-Briggs system or some other system, Jungian analysis, but you will never know the complication of that person. And personally, I cheer that on. So the bottom line here is that I would like to see standard mathematics treated as one very good way to look at the economy, but it looks in terms of things, things that are interrelated and objects that grow or not grow. Now we have another one. We have uh, computational economics, or I prefer to think of it as algorithmic theory, and that shows you different things. So you could say that over a couple of centuries, we go from geometry to algebra. Algebra added on to geometry, but it didn't replace it totally. And I think uh, algorithmic thinking, thinking in terms of processes and in terms of interacting events, illuminates things that we couldn't look at earlier, and it adds on. So it's not going to replace the previous methods of doing theory. 
I would like to use a word, I'd like to have a Catholic approach. <laughs> I don't mean religious, I mean uh, a wide approach. Say, so, yes, we will look statistically, yes, we can look algebraically, and yeah, let's experiment and see how these systems work, systems that create new things endogenously, so let's have a look at how algorithmically the economy works. We'll see different things. We get a wider view, but I don't think there's ever any end view, <laughs> and I hope not, of uh, fully understanding an economy. Uh, in fact, the science keeps changing, and this is true in physics, as the instruments of understanding change, be they mathematical or mechanistic, then the science changes, then the understanding changes. And I don't think there's an end in sight here, and I hope not. Wonderful. So just maybe this is, <laughs> I don't know, maybe we leave this out, but it just occurs to me in describing this open-ended recombinant approach to scientific methods, you know, we're developing this syntax, like an integrated pluralistic approach. Yeah. And that begs the question, okay, if we're moving from nouns to verbs, like what comes next? Adverbs? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like does that, that almost gets back to more like a Gertian kind of science of properties of things, you know, of like a uh, weaving the observer back in in a more formal and rigorous way, you know. But, yeah. Uh, well, in, in an unusual bout of humility, I would just simply say, I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's wonderful not to know that, you know, with complexity economics that was really started at Santa Fe and has now become a very large approach, we're basically assuming that the economy is not deterministic, highly ordered, probabilistic, but it's actually, there's fundamental uncertainty. But we can model how people proceed with fundamental uncertainty. Like, uh, I'm about to go for lunch. I don't know what will be there for lunch, but don't worry, I'll figure something out. So we can model that. And no small part, actually, thanks to my colleague, John Holland, who is very much a, an influence on me and other people at Santa Fe Institute, we can, just as if you're training some algorithm in AlphaGo, you started off just knowing rules but not knowing how to operate, you can learn. And that's how people do learn, maybe not exactly in AI or machine learning terms, but there are well-known ways that have been studied people learn from past events and so on. So what I'm cheering on is the idea that we're backing off from seeing the economy as a highly ordered, predictable system with this and that form of perfection. And we're backing off from that, seeing the economy as, in the longer term as not very knowable, but to quite a degree understandable. It's more sort of seeing the economy as a friend rather than as a machine. The economy is an organism that keeps changing and morphing. I like that, but uh, some people might find that's an uncomfortable view. You're trying to understand more of it. I don't think we will ever fathom the economy, just as we will never fathom 
what makes music music. We can say, well, it's due to this or that, but it goes on forever. Literature is the same. These are all attempts, if you ask me, of human beings to illustrate their world, to make it real, to tell stories about it. And I think that all of theory, uh, for me, is a story. It's, you know, what's the story of planetary orbits? How do they arise? How do they get there? Now we're looking at stories that of how things form, not just how things are. And so, personally, I like that. And how did planetary systems come about? What happens when a supernova explodes? How did the whole system of molecular biology arise? All of this is complicated. How did brains uh, in mammals arise? These are not fully explained, probably never will be. But we are shifting from looking at ordered mechanical systems to looking at systems that are fundamentally unknowable, fundamentally uncertain, and but we can t say a lot of things about them nevertheless. So rather than say some system like computations replacing standard mathematics, I hope it's not, I would prefer to say we have a new form of telescope, we have a new form of microscope, and that is uh, looking at things algorithmically. How do these events affect those events? What can you say? So it's a wonderful world. I wish I were <laughs> 40 years younger, <laughs> but it's fun to be in on the start of this, and I think it's very much a Santa Fe Institute view of the world. I hope so, anyway. Meaning exploratory and not taking a, a given method for granted. Well, I mean, it certainly seems that we've graduated from the reputation that SFI had sort of engendered in the 90s as participating in this grand search for a theory of everything. It seems like we've backed up off of that. We're not willing to die on that hill anymore. It's hopeful, you know. Yeah, I remember that era. I was there for all of it uh, since 1987. I remember the key person who was responsible for a lot of that, who will be nameless, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure you know who he is. And uh, yeah, I think what we're doing is there are many ways to define complexity, but I would just simply say, we're looking at systems that can endogenously create new structures based upon the structures and context that they've created themselves. And that keeps going on. And, and I think it's alive and it's wonderful, but it's not the last word. There never will be a last word, I hope. Well, I'll give you the last word on that one, Brian. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being back on the show. And and folks, if you like this, check the show notes. We linked all the papers and we'll link to the first two episodes with Brian as well, in which we look at how this stuff actually applies to economic thinking in a bit more detail. But again, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. 
For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.